0: Father in heaven, Lord of life, of love, of peace, of time itself, we stand in awe of your eternal presence and resurrection power. We open our lives to do your will. We ask your Holy Spirit to direct us and to help us live the words of Jesus. May we crown him Lord of our lives. We confess that on our own we stumble and fall. We tarnish that crown with impure thoughts and foolish actions. We ask that you empower us and guide us to walk by faith, step by step, day by day, as those who are forgiven. Bless this hour, O Lord. And may the words from your holy scripture ground us ever more faithful as servants in your kingdom. All hail the power of Jesus' name, our Redeemer and Teacher, who taught us how to pray.
1: We read this earlier. We love because He first loved us. Beautiful words. Have you ever noticed that there are many, many religions in our world? And it's very confusing for many people. And we often hear the rationalization that all religions lead to God. Whenever I read or hear someone say that all religions lead to God, I think that person, the person making that claim, has really never considered the words of Jesus. If they have read the words of Jesus and they still promote the belief that Jesus was only a prophet with some good things to say, then I stop listening to them. And I begin to think that they're either extremely biased or intellectually challenged. I've been told that I'm a Christian because of the circumstances of my birth. I've been told that I was born into a Christian country where Christianity and my upbringing determined the fact that I'm a Christian. That's partly true, but partial truths are dangerous. I could have rejected my faith like many other people, and there are many, many Christians around the world who did not have a Christian upbringing. So I want to explore, I want to spend a few weeks looking at what it is about our faith that causes me and others to be a believer. And let me tell you, the most significant factor that causes me to be a believer who follows Jesus is not my upbringing, not at all. To understand, the most significant factor that caused me to become a follower of Jesus. Let's read a portion of scripture from the book of Acts, dealing with the the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Acts 26, verse 14. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus used the word goad as he described what Saul was doing. Saul was kicking against the goads. If you don't know what a goad is, it's a stick with a point on it that the farmers used to use to jab the rear end of the ox. To make them go left or right, and after a while, the oxen would stop kicking against the goads, because they figured they figured out it was better not to get stuck with the point of the stick. And this is a common expression all over the world: kicking against the goads. Saul was being goaded, but by whom? Hmm. Obviously, Saul was resisting the goading from Jesus himself, goading. Hmm. To goad means to provoke or to drive or urge someone to do some kind of action. You're goading them. And the implication is clear. Jesus was pursuing Saul. Jesus was prodding and urging Saul. But Saul was resisting the pressure and it was causing pain for him to kick against the goads. It's colloquial talk. Idiomatic almost. The question then is, how did Jesus goad Saul? Scripture doesn't tell us (laughs) specifically how Saul was being goaded by Jesus. But there are plenty of hints and evidence in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles that can give us a pretty good idea of how Jesus pursued Saul of Tarsus. To begin with, Saul had been highly educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, a celebrated teacher of Judaism. There is no doubt that Saul was well-versed in Judaism, he was morally upright, and he meticulously followed the religious rules. To Saul, it was inconceivable that Jesus of Nazareth could have been the Messiah. The Jewish Messiah would never have been rejected by his own people and then die. That couldn't have happened in Saul's way of thinking. And not only did Jesus die, but his death was cursed. Since it was written in Deuteronomy that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. In Saul's logical mind, Jesus had to be an imposter. But his intellectual mind must have been perplexed with what he had learned about the rabbi named Jesus, who had so quickly developed a large following. There was the beauty and authority of his teaching and the gentleness of his character and his compassionate service to the poor. And beyond that, he was able to supernaturally heal hundreds of people. And there were rumors that his death was was not his end. People, hundreds of people, were claiming to have seen him and touched him and spoken to him after his death. Saul didn't have an answer for any of that, so he just blew it all off. He ignored it, but it was there. But there was more, much more. Saul had been at the trial of one of the leaders of those who claimed to follow the way Saul had been at the trial of Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Saul heard Stephen speak his own defense. Saul accompanied the religious leaders out of town and watched as Stephen was stoned to death. He saw Stephen's face shine like the face of an angel, we read, and he heard Stephen claim to see the glory of God and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then Saul heard Stephen say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then as Stephen fell from the last stone, took his last breath, probably on his knees, with his dying breath, he called out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Powerful words. That had to be an inexplicable event. Those followers of Jesus were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And they had the courage of their convictions. They were prepared to die for what they believed in. And not only that, they also didn't promote insurrection. Rather, they refused to retaliate to retaliate against their enemies. In fact, they prayed for their enemies. He blew all that off too. But that event must have been seared into his memory. Must have been. Saul was a determined man. When he made up his mind, he was good at follow through. He was also good at following through with the Ten Commandments. He was the kind of religious person for which a list of do's and don'ts worked really well. He liked lists telling him what to do. He was driven. In his letter to the Philippians, he said that he was blameless as touching the righteousness of the law. He could obey the Ten Commandments reasonably well, at least most of them. But there was one commandment that gave him trouble. It was the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment that he had difficulty with. See the 10th commandment prohibits covetousness. And covetousness is neither in word nor in deed. Covetousness is a desire, an insatiable lust. Saul was no different than anyone else. In spite of his tenacity, his determination to live righteously, he knew deep down inside that he was guilty. In his scripture, he even tells us this. Paul wrote to the Romans, If, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me what all kinds of covetousness when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Saul knew deep down inside his conscience that he was guilty of breaking the law. Saul had sought to follow God from his youth with a clear conscience but he knew he was separated from the very God he believed in. He understood that no man can fulfill the requirements of the Ten Commandments. And so he wrote, when the commandment came, I died. Black and white. He was too smart of a man. God knew it. Eventually, he was going to stop kicking against the goads. (laughs) When Saul was on the road to Damascus, Jesus was pursuing him. While Saul was kicking against the logic of reality that he saw with his very own eyes and with his mind, I believe that he had unanswered questions about who Jesus really was. He couldn't shake the haunting memory of Stephen's face shining with the glow. Well, Scripture says an angel. I think it's the Holy Spirit. God's power. As Stephen died asking Jesus not to hold his death against his enemies. And deep in his core, Saul knew. He knew that he had failed in his dogged determination to keep all those commandments. His conscience was pricked. You might say that his life was a lie. There was a vacuum of alienation between him and God. And the very fanaticism by which he persecuted the followers of Jesus betrayed his internal uneasiness. When Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul was at the end of a long process that came to a sudden climax. Saul at last surrendered to the one whom he had been fighting and running from. Jesus had been seeking Saul for a long time. That was the most significant factor in his conversion. And so it is with us. Whether or not we are consciously seeking God, he is actively seeking us. And Jesus assured us of this in his parables. God is like a woman who sweeps her house in search of a single lost coin. God is like a shepherd who risks danger in the desert, searching for a single lost sheep. God is like a father who misses his wayward son but allows his son to taste the bitterness of life and foolish decisions, but who is ready at any moment to run and meet his son and welcome him home. Many believers felt Jesus goading them to repent before their conversion. Sometimes it's it's through a dark pit of depression when everything makes no sense. Sometimes it's the fear of death. Sometimes even it's the fear of judgment after death. I like the more positive approach. God sometimes pursues us through the beauty and delicate balance of nature. That's what I saw Others saw God when they experienced undeserved love. Others have even found God when they experienced unrequited love. Why? How can that be? Because we know that love is the greatest emotion. There is no greater thing in this world than love. In all these kinds of moments, Jesus draws us near to him and he uses a knock on the door to a person's heart. The number one factor that makes me a follower of Jesus is that Jesus first sought me. Oh, but there's so much more to consider. I think you would agree with me that our modern culture does not affirm the concept of universal truth. Our culture teaches that truth is relative and that everyone has their own truth. Jesus has a message far different than that. Jesus taught that there is such a thing as universal truth. And the claims of Jesus were breathtaking. And his claims are another cogent reason that I am one of his followers. If you heard my sermon from last week, you know that I have disdain for empty religion. <laughs> but I hold Jesus unabashedly in the highest regard. He was a fearless critic of the established religion in his day. He championed the cause of the poor and the needy. He was friendly to the homeless and the dropouts from society. He had compassion on the people that society despised that were left alongside the road, the people that society rejected. He taught his disciples to love their enemies and he practiced what he preached. And when he preached, there was no doubt about what he said. In fact, his Teaching was extraordinarily self-centered. You heard me say that right. The teaching of Jesus was very self-centered. He taught others about the kingdom of God, and then he said that he came to inaugurate that very same kingdom. He spoke about the fatherhood of God, that all who believe have the right to become children of God, and then he added that he was the father's son. He claimed to be the bread of life, the light of the world, and the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Wherever he went, he put forward as himself. He put himself forward as the object of our faith. He told the people, come to me. He said, follow me. And he told people that he would take their burdens and quench their thirsty souls. He even said, if we love a family, our family, more than we love him, then we're not worthy of him. And then he claimed, he declared that humility should be our highest virtue. He told us to learn from him because he is gentle and humble in heart. Amazing side by side. Many non-believers have a problem with this Jesus. They say that a religious leader should be self-effacing and point away from themselves to the truth they teach. Indeed, Jesus is unlike all other religious leaders who have ever lived. Jesus was not religious. First of all, he was not religious. He railed against the religion of his day. He advanced himself as the object of our faith, love, and obedience. There is no doubt that Jesus believed that he was unique. He believed that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He proclaimed that with his arrival, the kingdom of God had arrived and to repent and to believe the good news. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. There are many places in Scripture where Jesus affirmed himself as the fulfillment of Scripture. For instance, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There's no doubt about what Jesus believed, who Jesus believed he was. One of the affirmations that I really like is how Jesus saw himself in two Old Testament figures. He called himself the Son of Man, a human person in the prophet Daniel's vision who was given authority glory, and sovereign power, whose dominion would be everlasting, never to fade away. And then he also saw himself as Isaiah's suffering servant, who was despised and rejected by men, and who bore the sin of many. Two different titles, the son of man was a title of honor, while the other, suffering servant, was a title of shame. And with that, with those claims, Jesus did something that no man before him had ever done. He merged the two images together by saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And you know those Pharisees and Sadducees understood what he was doing he insisted that only through suffering and death could he enter into his glory. Let's talk briefly about that title, Son of God. By itself, Son of God, the title is not definitive. However, the way in which Jesus used that title was very definitive. See, Jesus added the definitive article, the, as in the Son of God. You can be a son or a daughter of God, spiritually. We are. We are children of God. But Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus implied that there was a unique reciprocal relationship between him and his father, which enabled him to say, no man Oh, let's read the whole thing. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus was claiming a unique relationship as the Son of God. And this is where I often get into trouble with many of my Christian brothers and sisters. Right? And this, this, what I'm going to bring up just brief, briefly is an issue that tore apart the Christian community for hundreds of years. And I, I just feel compelled to make a comment about the relationship Jesus had with his Father. We do not understand the self-consciousness of Jesus. We do not know how he came to experience the fatherhood of God. We don't know. But we do know that even at the age of 12, he recognized God as his father and that throughout his life, his intimate relationship with the father in heaven continued. Jesus never tried to explain his relationship with his father, and neither should we. I am comfortable with what Jesus said. He said he was the son of God. I am saddened by arrogant theologians who try to define the exact relationship of Jesus to his father. Why? Consider the Sabbath. It has been rejected by most Christians for over 1,800 years. But that doesn't make Sunday the Lord's day. There has always been a faithful group who believe that we must follow all of God's commandments. There is also a faithful group of believers who are content to simply accept what Jesus said about his relationship to his father and leave it there. Jesus also claimed Authority to be our Savior and our judge. And in doing this, he set himself apart from everyone else. He claimed to be the light of the world. When every, everyone else was sinful, he claimed that he could forgive those sins. Those claims were scandalous in his day. And so the religious authorities accused him of blasphemy. Because to do so put him on the level of God made him equal to God. Jesus claimed authority to forgive a repentant soul and he also claimed the authority to judge the unrepentant soul. He claimed that all nations would stand before him and he would separate all people from one another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In other words, he claimed... be the one to determine a person's eternal destiny. He made himself the central figure on the day of judgment. So there you have it. The claims of Jesus were self-centered, yet clothed in humility. He claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He claimed to be the Son of God. And he claimed to be the Savior and the judge of humanity. There has never been anyone else like Jesus. Never. And then after all those claims, and this is just breathless what he did next. After all those claims, just a few hours before he was arrested, he wrapped a towel around his waist and he kneeled down and washed the feet of his disciples like a common slave. Jesus is unique in the history of this world. There have been a lot of arrogant, prideful people who have made claims to authority, to be in charge. But there has only been one Jesus, only one. The combination of of his egocentricity of his teaching, and the humility of his behavior is astounding. It's breathtaking. I am pulled toward Jesus. Intellectually, Jesus is very appealing to me, and it's a wonderful feeling and emotionally fulfilling to know that Jesus pursued me. And it is intellectually satisfying to believe in a Savior who is unique among all who claim to speak truth. And, brothers and sisters, there is much more to consider. So, until next time, I'll close with a hearty amen and hallelujah. Oh, Lord.
2: Then sings my soul to so my Savior God, too. how great thou art sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden be bearing. My soul, my Savior God, to how great Thou art, how great Thou art! Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to how great. Then sings my soul, my Saviour God to you. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Sings my soul, my Saviour God to you. How great Thou art. now.